you have your Bibles, please take them in hand and turn to James chapter 2. James 2. As you know, when I have this opportunity to stand before you on a Sunday morning, um, we've been looking at James over the last several months. I think it's taken us about 14 months to cover chapter 1 over about seven sermons. We're going to accelerate the pace a little bit and try to get about halfway through chapter 2 as it seems like a, a unit that deals with the sin of partiality. I've said pretty much every time I've, I've come before you as we've looked at this book that James deals with a wide variety of issues on the Christian life, and it does. Um, James, already in chapter 1, has dealt with the rich and the poor, and, and we'll talk a little about that. It seems like James kind of hits us, and then he kind of circles around and drops a big bomb on us in some of these things, and we'll see this again because he deals with the sins of the tongue that he's already dealt with a little bit, and then we'll see later in this book where he deals with them in depth. And this morning I ask that you invite the Holy Spirit to work God's Word into your heart and to reveal ways in which you need to be conformed to the image of Christ as we consider the sin of partiality. I want us to look at this under three texts or three headings. Verses 1 to 4, we see a warning as he describes a situation that likely happened within the church. In verses 5 to 7, we see the reason that James condemns this sin. And then finally, in verses 8 to 13, we see how the sin violates the law of love that is given to us in Scripture. The warning, the reason, and the law. So let us look to God's Word, but before we do, let us pause and ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Lord God, we are humbled as we think about ourselves in light of your law. We thank you that it is a gracious law, that, that it was obeyed and fulfilled by Christ. And yet, Lord, as your people and as your children, we want to obey your law. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this text, that we might sit under its authority. That you, by your Holy Spirit, would work it into our hearts and change us. Lord, make us better believers, Lord, not because of our own effort, but because of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Imagine with me that you are a greeter. We have greeters that stand out here and and try to uh, greet folks as they come in. But imagine you are fulfilling that role on a Sunday morning and you see a a very nice car roll up, maybe a luxury sedan and and a tall muscular man gets out in a very nice suit and he opens the door for his wife and she gets out and they begin making their way across the parking lot in and you notice a, a very big diamond on the, on the ring of the lady, and you notice a, a big gold ring on the hand of the man, and your thoughts are, are going, and you think, wow, this, this guy looks familiar. Maybe, maybe I know him. Maybe he's a professional sports player. I, I, I wonder what, what brings him our way. Maybe they, maybe they moved to Katy. Maybe they're going to join the church. Maybe we'll get that sanctuary after all if he joins. Who knows? And then you hardly notice... And maybe you wouldn't have noticed were it not for the smell that came in and accompanied the poor man in shabby clothing. He doesn't come up in a luxury car, but on a bicycle that looks like it maybe was picked up alongside the road as it was left out for the trash day. He comes in and and your eyes tend to divert away from him, hoping maybe he won't see you. Maybe he'll just slip in unnoticed and you won't have to really greet him because he's just really not somebody that you are naturally drawn to. So what do you do? Well, I really don't think that would likely happen here because Christ Church is a place that I think rightly um, tries to welcome people of all, of all classes, of all ethnicities. You look around and, and it's, it's wonderful to see people of varying colors and classes here among us, worshiping God as God's people, as one people together. I don't think you would probably ignore that man in the shabby clothes. But James gives us, in these opening verses, a situation very much like what I described and tried to update and personalize for us. And it very likely happened within this church, and James condemns it in very strong language. James begins this chapter with strong words of prohibition against the sin of partiality. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This this very first verse is really packed with meaning. It talks about holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it doesn't make sense to to show partiality as you are holding your faith in Christ. What is partiality? Well, the dictionary defines it as unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. Favoritism. It comes from the word meaning receiving the face. In other words, to make judgments based completely and solely upon the outward appearance of an individual. Remember what God said to Samuel when Samuel was called to anoint the next king of Israel. He was called to go to the house of Jesse, who had many, several sons, and the sons passed before him, and the the first one or two came by, and Samuel thought, oh, surely it's this one. 
He looks kingly. He's tall. He's handsome. He would be someone that the people would want to follow. But what was it that God said to him? He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. James, as we mentioned in the opening uh, of, of, our, of this sermon this morning, talks about the rich and the poor in chapter 1. He said that the poor should boast or rejoice in their exaltation, and the rich in their humiliation. And that, on the surface, may seem odd to us, but as we looked at that, and we've already considered that, but just as a reminder, we, we need to remember that the poor were brought up by their spiritual life and the riches that are theirs in Christ. And they need to be encouraged and reminded in that. The rich, on the other hand, should be blessed by the fact that they are, if they are believers, they have recognized their spiritual poverty. And they recognize that the only way they can be anything or do anything in the kingdom of God is out of God's grace for them. Not based upon their riches, but based upon God's mercy. All man, every person is created in God's image. And we are all victims of the fall and sin. Therefore, if we show favoritism to one group or an individual, it actually steals glory away from God. This verse talks about the God of glory. And it it calls Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. And that's somewhat uncommon in the New Testament. We see... Yahweh being called the Lord of glory often in the Old Testament. It speaks of God's presence or the weight or the heaviness of who he is, the Lord of glory. And, but then we see that title transferred to Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 2. And here in James, it's, it's a clear note, it's a clear indicator of his deity. And it's a reminder that he alone is to receive the glory. And so if we show partiality to one group or individual, we are stealing glory away from God because it's only God that should receive the glory. So what is this scenario? Well, it it is, uh, you know, as he says, a rich man comes in, a poor man comes in, the rich man is given the place of prominence, and the, and the poor man is, is dishonored and cast aside and given a place at, on the floor, basically, a place to sit there. But it seems that the people of this church, and it is a church, it calls it an assembly, it seems that they know nothing else about these two individuals other than what is apparent on the outside. And James says that by doing this, they have discriminated among themselves and become judges with evil thoughts. He, he asks that as a question, but he expects a positive response, and that is a condemnation against them. That's what they have done. And the word that's translated distinctions in chapter, I mean, in, in verse 4, is the same word that's used in chapter 1, where it talks about the man that is wavering in his faith. And I think what James is drawing us to as we look at those two words, that the distinctions that is being made between the rich and the poor when they come into the doors of this church show the wavering faith of the Christians within that church. And I think we need to be careful to consider in our own hearts how we make such distinctions based upon simply an outward appearance 
whether that is class or color or ethnicity. We are all in need of God's grace. But what is it that, that makes this so bad? Now we could say, okay, you know, we're, we're all somewhat biased, you know, and, and as I tried to point out in my email that, that, we, that I sent out last night, you know, there are natural connections that draw us together as people, similar interests or, or stage in life or age of children that draw us together, and that's natural. But if we do that to the exclusion of certain individuals based solely upon their, their outward appearance, we sin. But what makes this so bad? Why is James so hard on us? Well, he gives us the reasons in verses 5 through 7. And the first one he mentions should be easy for us to see if we are believers in Christ. Because it is that partiality is contrary to the gracious nature of God himself. We see throughout Scripture that salvation is not based upon any works of our own. Anything, we can't bring anything to the table that makes us worthy of God's grace. We, what we deserve is death and hell because of our sin and rebellion against God. And if you are here this morning and have not responded in faith and repentance to the offer of the gospel, I have bad news for you. Because that's true for you, that you too deserve death and punishment because of your sin. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or black or white or any shade in between. We are all sinners before Christ, before the God who made us and owns us. We owe our allegiance to God. And if we have not come in humble repentance and faith, then we are guilty before God. But there's good news too. There's good news because Christ died. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it is only of grace that any of us are saved. And we rejoice when anyone comes to faith in Christ because we know that God is calling a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and people group. And that is what the beautiful, one of the beautiful things about the church is that God is bringing people together from all these different backgrounds to glorify himself. When we see our sin and the sovereignty and mercy of God in our salvation, we should be humbled knowing how undeserving we are. And we know this is true for every person who ever has or will come to faith. Partiality is contrary to the gracious character of God. I want to pause here and just just interject that so often we have blind spots. And you look in the past at the church and you think about certain things that the church has condoned or allowed that, that you, you think you don't understand how that could be. One of which is, is slavery, as I think about the American Christian church. And, and so while I hope that there's nothing in, in our day that's as glaringly sinful as that, yet I think we all need to recognize that we can have blind spots. I recognize that 
that um, one of the, the many things that were a, was a blessing to me as I went through seminary was the opportunity to get to know uh, other men and women unlike me that God had called there. And I want to encourage you that if, if you find it difficult to empathize with people of other ethnicities or people unlike, unlike you, get to know them. There was a family that, and because we had a large family in seminary, the admissions office would often call me and say, hey, I've got this other family that has some, several kids, and uh, they would kind of like to talk to you about what the seminary experience is like for you, because I, I hope I was an encouragement to them, and we were always eager to do that. And there was one couple, an African-American family, that, and, and a couple and their kids that came to us, and, and they ended up coming, and we, we developed a friendship with them. And as, as we got to know this couple, I realized that, that they suffered in ways that, that I never realized or, and never thought about. And, and, and they suffered in categories that I didn't have. The wife, her brother was murdered, you know, and, and I think about that, and, and I don't know if any of that, if, if, if that has come close to your family, but I've been blessed that it hasn't come close to mine. And I think I have, I can only seek to feel into that situation because I've never encountered that kind of thing. And so we, I, seminary, I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, a place where the, the scars of racism still are very evident and run deep, and there's still a lot of hurt and pain over that. And, and, and that, I, I, was, I was blessed to grow up in the Midwest, but as I, as I came there and began to see the effects of, of the sin of racism upon a, an area and a region and a people, it's, it's troubling. And I would encourage you, just as an aside... To get to know people that aren't like you. It's difficult. It's hard. I still struggle with it. And there's people even within our own church that I need to get to know better. And I need to hear your stories. But sit down. Listen to each other's stories. Hear people's pain and the struggle that they've been through. And get to know them. And, and this, you can see that as the, you receive the grace of God... The, the sins of partiality and racism and bias can melt away as you recognize what God has done and how God is building his church. That was another thing as, as that has been a blessing to me as, as I've been able to go on missions trip and realize that, that the church is so much bigger than the church that, that I knew growing up. I was blessed to grow up in the church, but God is building a people, a church, for himself, for his glory, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What a blessing that is. Secondly, we should see that that partiality, the sin of partiality, dishonors those that we are called to love and help. God expresses his care and concern for the poor throughout his word. We see it in Deuteronomy 10 where God speaks as that he loves the sojourner, the and executes justice for the fatherless. In, in Deuteronomy 15, he, talks, he gives admonition to the Israelites of how they should care for their brothers that are poor. And often in Old Testament uh, scriptures, it, it's talking more of caring for the poor within the covenant community. 
And I think as, as God's people, and I think that many of us understand this, that our first responsibility is to those within the church, the covenant community. But yet Jesus takes that idea, as he does with so much of God's law, and extends it and applies it in ways that, that the, his hearers did not expect. When he told the story of the Good Samaritan, what we call the Good Samaritan, what was it? It was a man, it was a Jewish man that was traveling. Thieves jumped on him and stripped him of his clothes and his possessions and left him for dead. And the priest came by and went on the other side of the road. The Levite came by and went on the other side of the road. And who was it that stopped and helped? It was the Samaritan. It was the one that that wasn't expected to show compassion upon a Jewish person. And Jesus asked his hearers, he said, who was the true neighbor to this man? And they said, it was the man that had mercy. It was the man that had mercy. That's how you were a good neighbor, is through the mercy that you show to those around you, even to those that are unlike you. Jesus said in in Luke that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. And often in his time upon the earth, he identified more with the poor than he did the rich. He didn't have a place to lay his head at times. He, he lived with other people. In some ways, he was almost like a homeless person because he, he stayed in the home of Peter and he stayed even outdoors at times. And so we see that Scripture challenges us and, and pushes us towards compassion, towards active compassion for the poor. God does not exclude the rich, and, but it's clear that the way of the world is to exalt the rich. And the typical way of God is to use the things and the people that the world thinks are poor and foolish to bring him, him, him glory. Some would wrongly read James as saying that salvation is only for the poor. But scripture is clear that salvation is for whomever believes and places their faith in Christ alone for salvation. No matter their status or position in society. But God delights to give his grace to those whom the world has cast aside. And upon those who most greatly see their need for him. Because it is often those who are poor in material possessions who can more easily see their spiritual poverty and their need for Christ. And James is calling us to identify with these individuals and to recognize God's methods and see that God is glorified to give the riches of faith to the poor and make them heirs of his eternal kingdom. Thirdly, James gives as his reason is that partiality honors those who dishonor God. And we, we can't say categorically that the rich always dishonor God. That's not true. God called rich people to himself. We know men like Abraham and Job were, were well off in the ways of the world. They were men of influence and, and wealth and, and power. But yet, in this situation, it was the rich who were oppressing the righteous. They were dragging them into court and even going so far as to blaspheme the name of Christ. And why, why in the world would the church want to impress these people? It seems so illogical. It's almost silly. Why would they want to impress those who are oppressing them? But before we look too hard down our noses at these first century believers, consider the ways 
how many in the church fawn over celebrities in our own century. What about you? Are you idolizing individuals that are really blasphemers? Those who blaspheme the name of Christ, whose name you carry? James is telling his readers and us that partiality is antithetical to the gracious character of God. It dishonors the poor that we are called to love. And many times it honors those who dishonor our Lord. And finally, we see this section on the law. James ends on the law. And in these last six verses, the law is mentioned in five of those six verses. And James is telling us that there's no small sins. We might say, James, why are you so hard about this partiality? And, and I'll confess, I, I kind of didn't like to title a sermon, The Sin of Partiality. But James calls it that, and he calls us out on it. And lest we think that it's a minor sin, James has something to teach us about God's law. And he does that in our, our final section. He first calls it the royal law, which is kind of odd in in some ways. We don't see that term used in Scripture, and I think it may be the only place that it's called that. But when we think of royalty, we have to think of the king. Christ came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and where the, the kingdom is, where the king is. So the royal law is that which comes from the king. The royal law is the sum of God's law as it is interpreted by King Jesus. James speaks of it as being the love of one's neighbor. And this harkens back to Jesus' summary of the law. When, When someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he said that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He rolled up all the Ten Commandments into those two. And that is my paraphrase of Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 to 40. And James doesn't even focus on the first part, the love for God, but we know that is there. And in a sense, it is, it is because that the love for God is implied in this conversation. And really what he's dealing with here is love for neighbor. And our love for our neighbor should change the way we treat others and prevent us from discrimination as James condemns. It should lead us to love and welcome those who may be less desirable in the world's eyes. And it's the law that convicts us when we do otherwise. And then James tells us that we must consider the law as a whole. Now that seems easy enough on the surface. But I think too often we look at God's law as a list of do's and don'ts. And it... it, I'll admit it's easy to do that as you, if you were to read through Exodus and Leviticus and some of those books of the Pentateuch and you, and you say, okay, um, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any graven image, and you list the Ten Commandments, and then you start listing all the other laws, you know, 643, 644, and you, and you think about God's law as a long list of do's and don'ts. And if, perchance, you struggle in one area, you think, oh, well... I broke that law. But look at all these others that I didn't break. It, it, looking at God's law like that is, is, is like having a pile of stones. And you take one stone off and you still have a pile of, of stones there. However, we need to think of God's law like a sheet of glass. Where, at, where if, imagine with me, and maybe this is easy for some of you to imagine, two boys playing ball in the house... 
and maybe one of them makes the mistake of standing in front of the, the window and they're tossing a ball back and forth and one misses and breaks the glass. It's not going to do much good for that boy to say, oh, well, mom, it's only broken in one part. Look, look how much is still whole. No, the glass is broken. It's an indivisible hole and it has been broken. It has been compromised. And God's law is like that. It's an indivisible hole. Why is that? The reason it is, is that God's law is an expression of who he is. Think about when Moses received the Ten Commandments, which is the summary of God's law. We, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments as kind of like the first ten of that long list. But no, it's a summary. It's, it's, it's comprehended in that, the Shorter Catechism says. The law is comprehended in that summary. What did God do? Well, he, he spoke it. Initially, he, he wrote it. He wrote God's law on the tables. What we write and what we speak is an extension of who we are. And that's the way we should think about God's law. It is an extension, an expression of who he is. It reveals his character. It is an indivisible whole that we must learn to love. And I don't think James, even in this, is, is telling us that we really, in our sinfulness, can be expected to obey every part of the law. We know that Christ fulfilled the law and obeyed the law for us. Yet, it is because of the grace that is ours in Christ that we can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. That, it, that we love it because we love the lawgiver. That we love it because we love the Savior who has redeemed us and called us to himself. The law is an indivisible whole. And James tells us, if you break one part of it, you're guilty of it all. And so that's why we must flee to Christ in our hour of need. And then James calls it the law of liberty as well in verse 12. And I'll just deal with this briefly because we've already talked about this in chapter 1. This is a phrase that came to us in chapter 1. And, but we need to also think of, of God's law not just as an indivisible whole and as an expression of God's character, but as a law of liberty. And a way in which that we as God's people function in the way that he intended for us to. And it's a law of freedom. It's a law of liberty. Because freedom doesn't mean the absence of all restraint, but the presence of the right kind of restraint. And we use the illustration of a fish. That the law tells it to swim in the water. Because if it gets out of the water, things don't go too well for it, does it? If a fish is designed to live in water, so removing it from the restraints is a bad thing for the fish. And our freedom is found when we seek to flourish in the context and the environment for which we were created. We, as people, were created to worship and serve God. When we come to Christ in repentance and faith, we are made able not to sin. And we should see obedience as a privilege and a delight. It is as we live in obedience that we find true life. God gives us his commands for our own good. And then in the final verse, James again reminds us of the teaching of the Lord. 
It is the merciful who obtain mercy. That's right from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We have seen that we are all in need of God's mercy because of our sin and rebellion against God. And James is reminding us of what the Lord Jesus said, that if we have received God's mercy, we should be merciful people. Christ illustrated this for us in the parable of the unjust servant who had been forgiven this huge, ginormous debt. And then he took his fellow servant by the throat and said, pay me what you owe when it was just just minuscule in comparison. And then what did the people that hear it wanted to do? What did they want to do? They wanted to cast that servant out. They wanted him to receive a severe penalty for his injustice. And Jesus is saying that Those who are forgiven, forgive. Those who have been shown mercy, show mercy to others. And that's why the sin of partiality should be so far from us as God's people. We have been shown great mercy. And that should flow naturally from believers. People who have received mercy show it to others. And mercy triumphs over judgment. This can only be true because of the ultimate act of mercy done by our Lord Jesus upon the cross. The Apostle Paul reminds us that for our sakes, Christ became poor so that we could be rich through his poverty. He took on flesh. He humbled himself and his ultimate humiliation was upon the cross where he was mocked and scorned and spat upon. As he bled and suffered and died for my sins and yours. But scripture tells us that his death was also his glorification. Because the father glorified him in a special way in that moment. And it was this act of mercy that allows us to escape the judgment of God against our sin. As I was reflecting upon this passage and upon the mercy that is ours in Christ. I was reminded of a hymn that that I learned later in my life. Um, And it was a time where God was teaching me much about His grace and His sovereign mercy and calling me to Himself. And um, I just want to close with the words of this hymn. It's called Hail Sovereign Love. I don't know if you know it or not, but but, um, I won't try to sing it, but I I want to read it to you. Hail Sovereign Love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised the mention of His grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel rant, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel form appeared, who led me on with gentle pace to Jesus Christ my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became their hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold vengeance roll and shake this earth from pole to pole, 
No flaming bolt can daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me safe on heaven's coast. There I shall sing the song of grace to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. If you are outside of Christ, there is refuge in Him. And I invite you to come in repentance and faith. And saints of God, it is as we recognize and realize our own utter inability, our own utter sickness and death and sin, that we can love each other and love others properly, recognizing the mercy that has been shown to us. So I invite you to reflect upon the mercy that is yours in Christ and show that mercy to others of all classes and colors and types of people. Let us pray.